I am so grateful that you listened to my latest podcast. Please share these episodes with your family and friends. I look forward to being with you again soon. Have a great day. Welcome to Friday's interview, everybody. I'm so glad you're here. So I have made a new friend <laughs> as of a few months, and her name is Carolyn Spurrell. And I was so intrigued by Carolyn's line of work. She is a NICU nurse. And I asked her before we started, when did you start this career? And she told me in 1994, people. So that's 29 years ago. So Carolyn is a NICU nurse. She's now a transport NICU nurse. And I cannot think of a more incredible job that is saving lives and caring for the most vulnerable in our society. And that's children. And um, a, a, a month or so ago, I did a podcast, uh, podcast episode 245. It's titled Protect the Children. And I just love what Carolyn does. And I felt like interviewing her and letting her share her journey of becoming a nurse and what it's, how it's affected her life and the, some of the children that she has been able to um, protect and save. Um, I just thought you would all love to hear it because I, I just really can't think of a better way than spreading light talking about children. So Carolyn, welcome to the podcast podcast. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> okay, Carolyn, first of all, because nobody knows you and I, I know about your life growing up, but can you just share where you grew up a little bit about your family and then we'll head into what made, made you choose the career of becoming a nurse? Um, I grew up, I was born in the Philippines and I grew up there till I was 13 and my parents they, um, they are, well, they grew up um, Catholic, but then they joined the Lutheran church to become a missionary, um, a medical missionary to the, to Africa. So when I was 13, we went to Africa for three years. And that was my third, fourth and fifth grade years that, um, I was there. And so they, we, uh, the three of us, my older sister, younger brother, we um, we were in a in a dorm or a boarding school during school, and then we saw our parents during Christmas and um, during the summer for out of school. And so they were doing their medical missionary work, and I was um, we were there. So that kind of went on the journey of just being in, in the medical field because my dad's a doctor and my mom was a a nurse. So we went there and then came back to the States and then ended up here in California um, when I was in sixth grade. So that's where it is. My mom was a NICU nurse. And so I just was intrigued by her job, but she didn't really come home talking about her job much. You know, um, she just came home and worked. Uh, we were latchkey kids. <laughs> we just came in and um, we lived across the street from school during that time and then just came in, they'd come home from work and then life went on. So um, it wasn't really until um, I was in high school and I heard the story about baby Faye in oh, Loma yeah, Linda. Yeah. So we live in California and Loma Linda and baby yeah. Faye was really famous because 
she had a heart condition called um, hypoplastic left heart, right? And those babies at the time, um, they couldn't save them. They didn't, they just kind of told the parents that they um, would just have to let them go. And so Dr. Leonard Bailey, who was uh, um, the cardiologist at Loma Linda University Medical Center at the time, wanted to try to start to do um, transplants on these babies. So um, at that time, when um, I heard the story about it and, and she, and oh, what am I trying to say? He basically wanted to try to start to do transplants on the babies, right? So one of the doctors that um, found a baboon heart to be able to transplant that's to baby right. Faye, because yeah. they hadn't been doing transplants on babies ever at all at that time. This was in 1984, right? And so yeah. they ended up um, taking a baboon heart and transplanting baby Faye into um, uh, that heart into baby Faye. And baby Faye, she lived, you know, but she only lived for 20 years or 20 days at the time. But that proved to Dr. Bailey that they could, that babies could take hearts to be transplanted. And that because of that, they started doing baby to baby transplants. And um, it opened up the world for these babies that had heart conditions that they couldn't do anything. So they started doing baby transplants. And because of that story, when I was just right out of high school, um, I told myself I wanted to be a nurse and become a NICU nurse. Um, on that unit. And so, yeah, even if my mom wasn't a NICU nurse, it didn't really inspire me to want to become a nurse until baby Faye came around. So I went to nursing school, my mom put me through and I worked on that unit and became a heart nurse because that, and um, that just is amazing to me. So baby Faye only lived for 20 days, but then later, you know, not too long after that, another baby was transplanted and they call him baby Moses. So he was transplanted and he's alive today. He's in his thirties and doing really well. And so many babies have been saved by Dr. Bailey doing the um, baby Faye transplant with the baboon heart. And it was just incredible to me. And so I've been a part of that. And because of that, you know, our team for, would transplant or transport babies from all over the world to come do, do um, transplants at Loma Linda. And over this, over these many years, uh, they've been able to, uh, many of the hospitals have learned how to do baby transplants now. But then just probably within the last 10, 15 years, they don't do baby to baby transplants anymore because they've learned how to do another procedure to fix the heart um, better rather than having to wait for another baby to pass to be able to do a transplant. So NICU has just gotten so much better than we don't that they've been able to do surgeries um, to fix the heart rather than waiting for somebody to pass to, to save these babies. But it opened my world to me to the NICU to want to be a part of that and to transport babies in. Um, and it's been my life. Love my life. <laughs> no, no kidding, Carolyn. So 
when you thought about being with the babies, though, did it make you nervous because they're so fragile and so little? Because Matt and I, um, we had a little baby boy. Uh, I was six months pregnant and he didn't have any kidneys. He had a Potter syndrome and I yes. delivered him and, and he was dead. He, he, but he was so tiny. And even though he wasn't alive, I felt so vulnerable. Like I was so worried because he was so little. He was, you know, 12 inches long and he weighed almost two pounds, but he was just so tiny. So did that ever make you nervous? The thought of that when you were younger about trying to care for such a fragile baby? Um, sure. You know, um, of course, at the beginning of your career, when you first start, it's very, yes, it makes you very nervous. But because of the training that we have there, and because the frequency of how much we see these babies that are um, just need such high care, um, it just becomes your job. Um, because um, we saw so many of everything from all these different types of conditions because Lone Linda is such a highly specialized hospital with NICU that we're trained and um, just because of the church my knowledge in the church and I did join the church later you know um, once I went to um, BYU Hawaii as a non-member and so because of the, my background in the church of course I look at things so differently of how we can care for these babies and um I felt like I feel like my goal not is not so much now with these babies that really should pass and go on to Heavenly Fathers to the Heavenly Father is that that we just need to give time for the parents because I we know that when we save the babies and we keep them um keep them alive when they really the quality of care isn't as what you want it to be for the family and for the baby um it's I know what the the consequences are for the family and the parents and and that child what it's going to be like to keep them alive right so my focus now with these babies that are super sick and is to to give time for the parents to be able to um, spend time with them and then give them the time to decide when it's time for them to withdraw. Because, okay, so let me just tell you, um, the NICU and I think the hospitals in general, we have gotten so good at doing our jobs that we can keep our babies alive for a long time on machines and, and feeding them through tubes. But there's an ethnic question there. I'm not ethnic. What's the word ethical. 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 Yes. Ethical questions <laughs> like, should we keep them alive? So you'll hear about these babies that are 22 weeks and they're less than a pound. And, um, and you'll hear about them on the news that, oh yeah, they lived. And sometimes the parents will want to say, let's, you know, we're waiting for a miracle. But in reality, um, all of us that work in the NICU think, okay, yeah, we kept them alive, but what are they like? What is their life like? And so many of them, a lot of them are blind because oxygen is a medication that we give 
because I need it, but it blind it blinds our babies if we give too much or if they require too much, or they have GI issues where they have GT tubes, peg tubes for feeding, their lungs are really bad and they're on, they have trachs. And so, you know, because of that, uh, families sometimes just can't handle it. And then the parents, the babies end up going to, to like totally kids or convalescent homes for children. It breaks up the marriages. And, you know, because of that, it's hard for when we hear on the news of these babies that, that stay alive in there. Uh, so many an age, a certain age you know they've grown up and you think well what's the quality of life for them so um in looking at that perspective for me I think you know it's time sometimes it's a it's time to let them go at certain times but some families can't do that and um I look at it like um I just want to be able to give time for those families to know when it's to give them time to decide when it's time to go, to let them go. So um, our, we've just been highly trained. So it doesn't make me nervous. Yes, it makes me stress out when, when they um, go bad or they try to die on us, but we do our job. And, and sometimes it's, um, it's a good thing that we do let them go. But in the NICU, um, deaths don't happen um, by accident. They're planned. You know, these it's times when when the baby is so sick and we know the consequences of what's going to happen and the baby's not going to be have a good quality of life. Um, we do the tests that we need to we do the MRIs and the MRSs and all the scans. And um, we show proof to the parents that, you know, this baby, their brain just isn't going to work. They're not going to do well for the rest of their life. And um, we bring up to them what the consequences are of keeping them alive. And so um, the philosophy of some of the docs is that, you know, we, they take the decision away from the parents and they say, um, when do you want to withdraw support rather than asking the parents if you want to withdraw it we tell we they take away decision from the parents and say when do you want to just um, withdraw you want to do it on saturday or sunday because i know that that's a really good way of of um talking to the parents that way because it and the parents don't feel guilty for the rest of their lives that they withdrew support from their parents or from their child, right? Of course, they are going to be the one making the decisions, but the doctor is the one to, to really say it's time. And then um, I don't know how to explain it better. That well, I want, I want to ask you, just because not everybody, we don't know. I don't think a lot of people know the details, like what kind of babies come to the NICU. I mean, I, I know, I mean, we've had family like preemies for sure, uh, yes. but like share, when do you become involved in a family's life with that baby? What, what is it that brings them to you? Well, um, my team, when we're not on a transport, 
we go to deliveries, high-risk deliveries. And those high-risk deliveries can be anything from a baby getting stuck in um, at delivery or a baby that is, is too premature, right? So we know that the babies, they're born anywhere from 37 to 40 weeks, right? And so some of our babies now are being born at 22, 23 weeks, 24 weeks. And we're just kind of pushing it that before, when I first started, we used to only deliver 24-week babies at 500 grams, which, which is what, about two pounds. But now we're going so much less that the consequences of what happens with these babies that are super micropremie is their lungs aren't developed yet. And so here they're trying to develop um, in the NICU. And so those babies will, will bring them to the NICU, will go to the delivery, bring them to the NICU and put them on ventilators. And of course, being a baby on a ventilator, it's gonna damage their lungs because they're supposed to be in utero. So those are the kind of babies that, that will come to us, premature babies, um, heart condition babies, your type of your baby, a Potter syndrome baby that lived, right? Any any baby that just isn't normal or is going to need a little bit of help at delivery from then on will come to the NICU. So they um, they'll come to us and we'll get them through whatever their acute stage is, and then we get them back to the parents. So. Um, that's who goes to the NICU. How many babies? So when you show up at, at a shift, how many babies are you in charge of at Loma Linda? Like what, how many babies do you have to um, take care of? In Loma Linda. So I worked at Loma Linda up until 20, 2016. And then I came over to Kaiser Permanente and okay. Montana. So over in the NICU, just depending how sick they are, in any NICU, um, you can have one up to one to three kids at a time as a nurse, right? So one a one-to-one -one is a super sick baby, you know, just needs constant care. You can't leave the bedside. And then a one-to-two, maybe a sick baby on a ventilator, and then another one, just a growing baby that needs to just feed and get bigger, yeah. learn how to eat and then um, can go home. So that's a one to two. And a, a one to three baby, they're, um, they're growing babies. They're just right at the end of their time, just getting ready to go home. So they're just learning how to gain weight, to breathe on their own without oxygen, just so maybe on a cannula or just um, feeders. We call them grower feeders. So they're just trying to get to a certain weight to be able to get to go home and and go home with the parents. So either one-to-one, one-to-two, or one-to-three. So, but for me as a transport nurse, what I do is I'm full-time transport. So I have my own office with my team and we basically go to all the high-risk deliveries, resuscitate them, help them either go back to the parents at the delivery if they're doing fine, or bring him to the NICU and admit them. And then when we're not um, at a delivery or uh, then we go on transports, we kind of 
bring the babies from one hospital to another, whether for a higher level of care or a lower level of care. So like some of the NICUs, they're, they're um, categorized level one, two, and three. So one is a nursery, level two is, is like a, a NICU that takes sick babies, not, but not the cardiac babies, not the surgical babies. And then level three are the highest level. So if one NICU is too full, they can take one of the babies that are more stable and bring them to a level two hospital and then um, bring them to a lower level of care. Or if a baby's born in a nursery that doesn't have an NICU, then we transport them to a higher level of care. So that's what I do is I transport the babies with a team. And my team is composed of either a nurse practitioner or a doctor, a respiratory therapist, and myself. So there's three of us in the back of the ambulance and two EMTs that are driving us in the ambulance. And um, when I was at Loma Linda, if we're, they're far or they, we need to get there right away, we would fly on a helicopter to um, transport them. Or if they're even farther, we will drive in a fixed wing and or drive to the health, uh, to the airport and, and go on a fixed wing and then um, fly to there. So the farthest I ever went was Arizona. We flew there and brought a baby, but because by the time I joined the transport team, um, a lot of the hospitals were already getting really good at doing heart transplants. So I didn't have to fly out of the country or out of too far to back east to bring the babies. Does the transportation in a helicopter, um, is that tight? Is it cramped? Is it hard to, to like focus? Or are you, is your mind just so fixed on your job that you aren't worried about the space, the tight space or anything like that? Um, yeah, it is tight space, but it's more, um, we, you know, the problem with that part is, is we're, we have to be buckled in all the time, right? So me as yeah. the person that's the hands of the team, I'm sitting right there. And then the RT is at the head of the bed away from me and the, and the nurse practitioner or the doctor or, or the nurse assistant that's um, heading the team, they're not right by the bedside. So that was, that's a challenge in the helicopter because if you're coding somebody or, or something's really good, not, you're like the only hands that is close enough to be able to get in with the baby. So I've never had to land. We've never had to land um, for emergency because we're coding a baby, but you know, it's all, I'm kind of the, the person, the nurse, like myself, I'd be the only one that can really be close enough to touch the baby. That's the only problem with that, you know, but of course, you know, we don't fly, we don't move the baby outside of the NICU until they're stable to be able to actually travel. But, you know, there are those babies that are super sick that, you know, it can, things can happen because they don't know how, the babies don't, you can't predict how they're going to gonna react to the noise, the bumps, the, right. the flight, all of that. So that was the only thing with the, the flight. But it's, it's great because instead of an hour and a half drive to get there and get right. back to your home base, it's a 20-minute flight. And it's so much more smoother, you know, so, um, but we don't get onto the ambulance or the helicopter until 
we know that they're going to be okay in the air or on in the ground. So, wow. yeah, it's, but it's exciting, you know, it sounds way more glamorous than it is. <laughs> and why do you say that? In, why do you say that? Because you're flying, but yeah, you're in this cramped space, you know, when you're, um, be, when you're lifting off or landing, they have to turn off the air conditioner just because of the power thing, I think. And so it's super hot right at the beginning. And then you get up and uh, then you get your air AC back. So it's super hot. And um, I don't know. Oh, it's just exciting, you know, to be able to look around. But when you have a sick kid, you're not looking around. You're basically just Focused. looking at the kid the whole time. But when, um, and then um, that's the helicopter part, right? But then the ambulance part for now that I'm at Kaiser and we don't fly there, um, it's just, it's a long ride. It's an hour and a half or two hour drive to San Diego and you're in the back of the ambulance and then you drive from San Diego all the way to LA for another two hours, you know, in the back of the ambulance and they're not very comfortable. <laughs> So, and then, then you have to drive all the way back, back to your home base. So you're in an ambulance sometimes for 12 hours in the back of an uncomfortable ambulance, but, but, you know, it's your job and, but that's what we're, we want to do. So it, and even the flying part, you know, the fixed wing flying part, it sounds really exciting. Like you go somewhere and you're flying there, but you know, you don't see anything other than the ER walking through it and um, go get the baby and then you come back and and that's it and the, the bathroom and the in these Lear jets they're just like a little tiny thing and it's a has a little curtain across so you don't want to go to the bathroom in those <laughs> planes and they're tiny they're they're very cramped it's true <laughs> I know I was watching, I was actually watching a show about there's these, all these hospitals in New York. And, um, one of the hospitals is the flight. They go and they pick babies up on in flight. And I was watching it's claustrophobic. I mean, just to slide the patient in and the nurse and the, the doctor, I mean, it's tight. It's so tight. Yes, it is. Okay. So I want to hear, cause Carolyn, you shared, I mean, I know your story about joining the church. Um, you went to BYU Hawaii and you weren't a member, but you, you know, you chose to find out more about the church and you joined the church and you served a mission. And so you and Daryl get married and you're unable to start your family. So can you share with everybody a little bit about your miracle? as a NICU nurse with your child? Yes, absolutely. So Daryl and I, um, we were married in 19. Oh man, I don't look at number. I just look <laughs> at the years again. So yeah, yeah. we got married in 1987, right after my mission. And um, oh, we had it all planned. We're going to have our baby after two years. And, and then, you know, it's going to be, in the spring, because I didn't want to be pregnant during the summer, blah, blah, blah. So, and then suddenly, you know, we couldn't have kids. We just tried. We did, um, we 
pretty much kind of decided we didn't want to do in vitro. So we tried artificial insemination a few times and that just didn't work. So we just decided, no, it's not going to happen. So I, and then I started working in the NICU and, um, and, you know, I was on night shifts, so it wasn't so bad. I didn't have to meet the parents so much. And of course, some of the parents are drug parents, you know, they had this preemie baby because they're druggies, you know? And so, and then, I, I just went through this whole period, like, why is it that I can, I'm living my life, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, I'm going to church, I'm paying my tithing, blah, 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 and, um, and why is it that I can't have a baby, and we even went through this period, remember that scripture where it's DNC 8210, where if I, the Lord am bound when you do what I say, but when you do not what I say, you have no promise. Exactly. So I just lived my life to the T <laughs> and it didn't happen. And I was like, fine, then I'm going to stop going to church. So I stopped going, we stopped going to church for six months. Like, this is not working. I'm so unhappy. I'm going to go back. <laughs> so so I, I was working in the NICU. So I just went through that whole period and I thought, oh, this is not going to happen. But, um, then I went to day shift and really started um, talking to the parents because that's when parents come visit is during the day, right? And then I was like, that's it. That's when I went through that whole period. But then, um, um, uh, and a lot of my coworkers, they knew that I couldn't, we couldn't have kids. So one of my friends, she goes, hey, Caroline. So over at Loma Linda, they have anywhere from 60 to 80 babies, sometimes 90, right? So you don't know them. You don't get to know these babies, all of them. And, and I was a team leader at the time. I go to the deliveries and I kind of go around and help all these nurses. And so I wasn't at the bedside all the time. So I didn't get to know a lot of the babies. I was just helping. So anyway, one of my friends says, hey, Carolyn, you should take this baby home with you because this little baby was a 26-weeker He's three and a half months early. He's um, 800 grams is like two, two and a half pounds, right? So she was a, his primary. So in the NICU, you can become a primary nurse to these babies where every time you come into work, you take care of this baby. And so he had three primaries and one of them was my friend. Um, and she, she said, Carolyn, you know, you should start watching this baby. So anyway, um, I started going to his bedside more and just fell in love with him when he's a little boy. Um, um, and his mom had left him at the hospital, right? And so he was basically an award at the state. And so any decisions that were made, we would have to um, get a judge to answer. And so anyway, so, so I start paying attention and I'm like, oh my gosh, this baby is so cute. I really, we really should adopt him. So I tried to get my husband to come visit, visit him, but he's like, he's always had this fear. Like, I don't, you know, I don't think we should, we should try because what if the parents come back? So anyway, um, I was taking care of him. One of the very few times that I kind of was at the bedside, I was taking care of him and Daryl was bringing his lunch to me. And I and go, hey, come on up. And so by then, um, the our uh, Jordan, we named him Jordan. He was six months um, 
in the hospital, right? But probably right around four months is when my husband met him. And I, he had him come. He was just growing, a growing preemie at the time. He wasn't on oxygen anymore. So I took him to this special room that we have in at Loma Linda and just took Daryl there and then brought the baby to him. And he, by then he was like only four pounds, just like this little tiny thing. And I laid him on my husband's chest and he just fell asleep on Daryl. And it just touched Daryl so much and said, okay, let's, let's just say our prayer right now and see if we should bring this baby home. And so we knelt down with Jordan in the room and prayed. And that was our, our, um, time when we made the decision to bring him home. So that was about four months while he was in the hospital. So it took a couple months more for us to do the paperwork to be able to bring him home. Um, and, you know, they wanted us to take medical fragile classes. I'm like, why? I'm a <laughs> You're nurse, like, I'm so a NICU nurse. <laughs> I can teach the class. And then, so I just was able to just give them all my education to get away from that. But then we still had to take like um, fostering classes to be able to bring them home. So then um, we still were waiting for some other paperwork. So he actually got discharged from the hospital went for two months to a foster care home where we visited him every day that I was off and then was able to bring him home as a non-relative family placement. So um, he was placed with us as foster for two years and then we were able to adopt him and um, officially but you know, the whole time we would have, they would have court cases to see if any of the other family members wanted to bring him home, wanted him. but mm-hmm. they didn't. And um, nobody wanted to bring him, take him home. So we got to keep him. So his name's Jordan Matthew Spurl. Um, his, mo- his mom named him Matthew, which, um, and then we called him Jordan. So Matthew is gift from God and God, yeah. um, Jordan means descending. So descending gift from God. That's how we do <laughs> so I like um we I considered changing his name from Matthew but I thought you know his mom gave him life and that's what he left she left him so I wanted to keep his name and so Jordan has known that he's been adopted since he was a baby he knows he has a tummy mom but I am his real mom <laughs> so it's been that way how and did that yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, so interestingly enough, he looks like my husband. My husband's Caucasian. I'm Filipino, and um, he's blonde and looks just like Daryl. It <laughs> <laughs> How did it change purpose. your life as a nurse? Like, what did it oh do for goodness. you going through that whole process and then having a different perspective at work? Um. Oh my goodness. Just, well, just like any other baby, another mom with having a baby for the first time, your whole life just looks differently. Um, I was able to, um, so because he was a preemie, I understood more now what it's like to bring a baby home, right? So the way it's changed now from work is that I'm able to kind of advise parents of what it's like to have a baby, a preemie baby at home, 
or um, when they go home, because I never saw that before. And so now that I know Jordan had um, these micropremie babies, you know, they're having to push away all the all the noxious stuff that we do to them. We have to suction them, change their diaper, um, give them baths, and they don't like that when they're tiny, when they're preemies. And so they just sometimes they try to die when you're when you do that because um, when you're suctioning them or you know because they can't handle that kind of stress. But um, so we get them through that and we you know, are more careful with them when they do try to die or where they're more sensitive or we don't do certain things. Um, we don't give them baths when they're super sick or we, you know, we try to, um, so now as he's, when they go home, they're used to pushing away the stress, right? And so Jordan, when um, he wanted noise, yeah, you know, just the whole idea of being in the NICU with all the alarms, um, they, they want, they hear noise all the time, right? So when I bring him home, when I brought him home, when the house was too quiet, he would wake up for everything, right? Or, and so I just, we kept music on, I could vacuum around him all the time. And he would sleep through all of that because they are just used to that level of noise and they know that somebody's around them. So he just, and I learned that. And even with food, you know, they don't want the bland stuff. They don't want the rice cereal. They want the, the more flavorful stuff. So as he's growing up, he wanted the balsamic vinegar at the Italian restaurant. He wanted the salsa at the, um, at the Mexican restaurants. You know, that's what he wanted because our issue with him was he wasn't gaining weight. So then I had to go to the nutritionist and they said, you know, just give him more flavorful food. And sure enough, you know, he wanted to eat more because he didn't want to eat the bland stuff. So that's how it's kind of changed for me um, in with my careers, knowing what it's like and trying to tell the parents like, this is what it's going to be like. And then of course, you know, he, interesting enough is, one of the primary nurses said that, you know, Carolyn, he was the first baby that I had to do chest compressions on and he was really sick. And when I, I got to him, he was like doing really good. He was just growing preemie and off of oxygen and doing well. And then um, when he was growing up till he was five years old, I thought, wow, you know, I think we did pretty good. He's playing t-ball. He's doing really good. He's gaining weight, eating. And then but by the time he was in third grade, it's when they start um, learning their fine motor stuff and reading and writing stuff where they start, you start seeing the effects of what they, of what happened in the NICU or in utero or the things that happened when they were first developing. And so he started just, his reading um, didn't, he just started slowing down. He wasn't kind of keeping up with the rest of the kids, but he's 18 now. He's doing great, drives, goes to school, just got his grades and he's got A's and B's. And so, you know, um, you just I just know that there are effects of what happens in the NICU or when the mom's taking drugs in utero or all those things that are happening. Um, and so I can see it. 
in hindsight and kind of help the parents now to be able to be ready for that. And so I tell them, you know, hey, any baby that um, I, any baby that's in the NICU, I say, you know, when you go to school, when the, your baby first starts going to school, go to your principal and talk to them and tell them, hey, my baby was in the NICU. They um, had this issue or whatever. So that the principal has the history of that baby already so that when it's the kids in third grade or a little bit older, that they'll know to give them the support that they need. And that's exactly what happened with us. We introduced him to our principal, third grade, he started having issues with reading and he got pulled out for a couple hours every, every day um, for reading, for helping with his reading. So I think that's the biggest thing I can tell parents that just let your principal know that you might need support in the future. And it happened yeah. with us and I got it right away. So wow. that's one thing. Do you have any other um, stories without like obviously revealing anyone's privacy, but do you have any other touching um, NICU experiences that you are able to share with us? Yes, I actually have two. And, and this first story is one of my friends and it's not an I'm just going to say it's not an uncommon story, okay, because this happens, and this just happens to be my personal story, so I'm not going to, I'm sharing you not to, not to boast or brag about it, but because nurses, this happens with nurses, so I was taking care of this micro preemie, she was a 24-weeker, and I got really close to the parents, I became a primary for this baby, and um, it just came time for um, the parents to decide to withdraw support. Um, she just wasn't doing well at all. And so they decided to withdraw support. And I don't know why this happened, but the, um, so she lived for just like a couple months, but um, they didn't call me when they were going to withdraw. You know, usually time, the, the, the unit will call the primary and come in so we can come and be with the parents, but they didn't call me. So then I found out like, what? She, she passed away and they withdrew without me, sadly, but I was able to, to be with the parents and I, I talked to them and said, hey, how can I help you? And I do flowers, you know, for weddings or really exciting or things. And so I was able to help her do um, the flowers for the funeral. And then um, just, I just got really close to these parents because I was with them every day that I was work for a, a couple months. And I just, um, and I said goodbye to her at the funeral and said, okay, that's that, you know, I thought that was gonna be the last I was ever gonna see her. Then a, a couple of years, like two or three years later, I get this announcement for me to go up to the front of the um, NICU and I'm like, oh, what's going on? So I go up there and she's there. My friend is there and she goes, Carolyn, you know, I just want you to know and I want to thank you so much that for the experience that we had with our baby. And because of you, I became a nurse and I want to oh. work here. And so she applied and she started working with me at Loma Linda. And now she works with me in, in Kaiser Fontana. And we are just such, so close to each other because of that experience. 
and she even named her second baby with my name as her middle name. So, oh. um, so, and that's not uncommon. There's so many nurses in the NICU, in the hospital that they become close to the families. And some of the primary nurses, they're like going to the weddings of these babies because they've kept in touch with them for so many years. And, and I just feel like, you know, we don't only touch just the babies, but it's the families and we change lives that way. There's an, another one where um, some of our babies, like they have the kidney issues, right? And they'll go on dialysis, um, but it's not the, it's not the dialysis with the machines, but it's like a, a fluid that just goes into the abdomen, it's peritoneal dialysis. So these, this was, these, this couple, um, they're young, they're like 16, 17 year old couple and had this baby that needed dialysis at the bedside. And of course it's continuous, you can't leave the bedside, but I knew that they were gonna go home and have to take care of this baby this with dialysis. And so I trained them how to do it at the bedside. And then eventually I could go to lunch and they just take care of their baby. And of course there are nurses around to also um, observe what they're doing, but they were able to be confident in taking care of their baby. So, and I remember the first time the, the mom saw that um, the, the catheter where it starts, she fainted at the bedside. That was crazy. <laughs> and then now there was taking a few weeks later, they're taking care of their own kid. And um, so when they got discharged, the dad actually became a dialysis tech and he learned to become a dialysis um, tech and is working in dialysis center. So we totally teach them and, and it works so good. But, you know, and with both, both stories, you know, they don't, sometimes they don't come out the best, you know, for the baby and they do pass on, but we gave them time. We gave them time to be with the baby and it worked just great. There's this one baby, I remember um, his name was Brett and he was in the paper and he needed a heart transplant, right? And of course I was a heart nurse and they were waiting for a baby, a baby to pass so that Brett could get a heart. And so I was in the, um, I was working night shift at the time and his mom and I were just talking, you know, about family and, and nobody could really understand why the mom was taking this critical time, this acute time so well with Rhett, because, you know, if you, if the, if a baby isn't gonna, if there's not gonna be a baby heart available, the baby's gonna die, right? Because they're waiting for another baby to pass to be able to get a heart for Rhett. And so she knew, um, his, she just had, she told me about her patriarchal blessing. So she was a member and, um, she said, you know, Carolyn, I just, I just know something's going to happen to Rhett because in my patriarchal blessing, it tells me that I have, I have, I think it was five. I have five kids and Rhett is our sixth, you know? And so she knew that something was going to happen to him that just, he wasn't going to live. And sure enough, you know, um, he just, he passed away waiting for a heart. And I got to be there when um, we, um, when Brett passed. 
And it was, we brought him to a special room again that we have over there in the NICU. And it was so sweet, you know, I was, um, the whole family was there. And I just started singing, I'm a child of God. And the whole family started singing, I'm a child of God with me. And then we sang, families can be together forever. And it was so special. And just, and he just passed peacefully with the family singing the songs. And um, those are the kind of moments that you have as a primary nurse, as a nurse, to be able to, to um, help the families go through this crisis in not such a traumatic way, but to make it peaceful and kind. And then, you know, and it's, it's what we do in the NICU. And, I love it. Anybody that even thinks about being a nurse or is, has a career of thinking of being a nurse, come to the NICU. It's so sweet and gentle and wonderful. I love my career in the NICU. I've gone from the bedside nurse to transport to, um, to everything that I've done. I love it. And you know, I even had to ask my son, I said, you know, Jordan, is it okay if I tell the story on this podcast? And he said, Mom, no, I don't want you to. But then after I told him, I said, you know, the reason why I want to tell your story is because I know there's moms out there and moms and dads that want a baby, that there's babies in the NICU that need them. And look at how it turned out for us. That we have this perfect little family. I love our family with him as that that he's just changed Daryl's in my life and and I want other families to feel the same way that it's um two ways two things that yes there are babies in the NICU that can come um come to their home but also another reason why I want to talk about um the babies that have passed on because it's okay you know they've you don't have to go through letting them to live with the quality of life that they're going to be um, on oxygen for the rest of their life and they won't won't um, recognize you it's okay to let them go because they go to heavenly father and that's what we're there for as nurses to help you get through this and that we're going to make it okay Oh, well, I, I've only really been in a hospital to have babies. And then once when our, our page had rotavirus, I spent four days in the hospital. And I have to tell you that the nurses um, touched my heart so much and their love and dedication to their work. And I'm just so thankful for nurses like you, Carolyn, I'm grateful that you exist and that you're out there. And I hope that we recognize that as we have emergencies take place or people in our lives have to go to a hospital and be with someone just to thank a nurse for all that they do. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you love your job still after, I mean, you've been doing this, like I said, 29 years and you love your job. Is there anything else before I ask you my last question that you would like to share with everybody that you thought about during the time preparing to do the podcast? I think um, 
just like when you do go to the hospital, just ask your nurse. If you bond with that nurse, ask them, hey, can you take care of my baby? Or can you take care of my son or my daughter when you come into work? And the nurses have the choice to sit, to ask for a list sometimes. You know, every unit's a little different, but we can have the choice. And if you do feel that way, ask them because it makes a big difference for us as nurses to want to, to, to alleviate the stress that the parents feel like, oh, I don't know who's at the bedside. But when you have somebody that's a primary and they know who's at the bedside, then they can relax more when they're at home, right? Because they know that um, that nurse knows your child. So that's really what I wanted to tell you and that there are babies, kids out there. You don't have to go to out of the country to adopt a kid. <laughs> They're there. And I have, and even if they are medically fragile babies and kids, you're going to learn. You're going to be so strong to be able to adopt that kiddo and know how to take care of them. And then you become a dialysis tech. <laughs> <laughs> or a NICU nurse. <laughs> uh, with the challenges, we can become stronger. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so my last question that I ask everybody, Carolyn, is how do you personally seek light? So how do you seek light in your life? Oh, I want to be honest with you. I need to seek light more. <laughs> I feel like I just kind of go on and on day to day. And, but how do I seek light? I seek light through, um, through just going to church, being there, um, helping other people. And um, I need to read my scriptures more for sure. <laughs> But I listen to podcasts like <laughs> yours. <laughs> like I listen to the, the talks on my way to work, you know, the talks for a conference. That's how I seek light. But I seek light, try to do that in my home with my family and with my son and try to do things that that lift my heart, you know. So that's how I seek it. Yeah. And if everybody could see you just being with you, Carolyn, you are, you are light. I mean, you are the epitome of light and I know you serve other people and you have a beautiful voice and you just do so much good. And I think in life, sometimes we're, we're not comfortable. Like we're thinking, Oh, but to me, general conference talks are scripture, you know? <laughs> so you do a great job. Well, Thank you so much for coming on my podcast and sharing your journey as a NICU nurse and for taking care of all these precious little babies that are so fragile. Oh, thank you. And I want to tell everybody that a lot of us are getting ready to retire. So we want nurses to, we want you to be trained because I love my job. I would advise anyone to come be a NICU nurse. It's such a great job. I love, love, love my career. And imagine going to work every day and loving what you do. 
And that's what I do. And anybody that can be a nurse to take us that are, take over our positions that we're retiring, please do. <laughs> okay, you oh, heard I the have call. To tell you one last thing. Yeah, um, my please. friend and I, we um, we go to high schools just and talk about our our job. We tell them pictures, show them pictures, show them videos of transport, and it's so. Uh, we have inspired it's I know some of them have already you know but one of the boys and I I have to tell you NICU nurses are not girl they're not girl jobs right so he he totally graduated he's working in the NICU now this little high school kid that we met a few years ago he's in the NICU wanting to become a transport nurse and I have to tell you one other story. Sorry, I'm making this no, long. No, please do. So NICU nurses is definitely not a girl job. So this one guy that works on the NICU over at Loma Linda, his friends used to call him, oh, girl jobs here, girl jobs here, right? And um, it was so embarrassing for him. But then one day he actually transported one of his friend's babies to the NICU and then they knew like, whoa, now they knew who he was, what he does. And now he's not girl job anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's great. Yes. It's such a great work. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate being here. I'm so grateful for, for having met you. You have, you and Julie have changed my life. Absolutely. And I love the conference that we went to for um, our women's retreat. And I'm so grateful for that. It's changed my life and given me a new outlook of how to, to go towards what my goals are. <laughs> to take that choice point. Am I going towards it or away from it? <laughs> Changing my That's thoughts. Awesome. And I really am grateful for this. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you. Hi, my name is Beth, and I am the host of the Seeking Light podcast. In a world that presents us with growth and challenges, there is tremendous light. And this podcast is a source of light through scriptural insights that I have gained through the years. Come join me as I share light in a world that can sometimes be confusing.